There's a classic business book. If you read business books, you've read it by Jim Collins called Good to Great. And every pastor in the nation has quoted it at least once. And I've quoted it many times. But it's so apropos in this message on power and justice uh, from the Proverbs. He talks about, Jim Jim talks about, um, well, first of all, let me, let me t- give you a bit of the framework for the book in case you haven't read it. It's a special book in large part because it's based on forensic research. It's, it's, um, it's not just a great business idea that he has. He, it's, um, it's objective data that he, that he, uh, pulls out conclusions from, right? And so the framework is that he, um, that Jim researches the top and I can't remember exactly. It's been years since I've read it, and I'm, all my bo- books are in boxes. So pray for me. It's it's something that I'm uh, lamenting daily. But he he pray he uh, he prays. He looks at the top, you know, Nasdaq and S and P 500 companies, and he has he has um, criteria for those companies. You know, it's it's like earnings. It's um, over a long period of time, company health, etc. So, so health in every way over the long term. And, and, and then the numbers are the only things that tell the story. His feelings have nothing to do with it. And it's something like 11 companies that end up making the cut out of, out of the thousands. And he looks at his, his book is a product of his looking at those 11 companies and what they had in common. And, you know, let's say it's seven things. So his book is after he sets all that up for 20 or 30 pages saying, here's my experiment. He says, now I've distilled this into the seven common denominators that all these 11 companies share. And he talks about those things. And that's what separates the good companies from the great companies. A lot of, lot, hundreds and thousands of good companies, only 11 great ones. And here's, here's the seven things. So one of those things though, is what he, I believe, if I recall correctly, um, terms the servant leader. And without exception, if, again, if I remember right, there may have been one exception. I don't think there was. I think with, in every case of the 11 or whatever companies, um, the CEO, the man at the top, was sort of at the bottom. It was, it was, an, it was, a, it was an upside-down pyramid. In other words, by choice, that CEO was a servant leader. That, that CEO was typically um, not boisterous, not even you know, sanguine personality, not effusive, not needing to be in the spotlight, not even wanting to be in the spotlight, purposefully doing yeoman's work, um, making people better around him, tending to the company, shepherding, as it were. Um, and and, and in, uh, as an aside, since then, a very similar model was used in the sports world by a Wall Street Journal uh, writer. I can't remember his name right now, but the book is called Captain Class, Sam Sam Walker, maybe is his name, the author, Captain Class, and he does the same thing with sports teams, and he finds, let's say, it's either 11 or 17 people in all of recorded sports history that share the characteristics. Uh, he looks at all these teams that, that made it similar to the companies that Jim Collins looks at in Good to Great, that were the best teams in the world numbers of years running, and he finds out what is the common denominator, and, and he finds out that it's the captain. There was a captain who was the same thing, a servant leader, not... Uh, Michael Jordan doesn't even make it, doesn't even make the cut. He's he's talented enough, but he's not enough of a servant on the court. And therefore, his team wasn't served enough by him to make it into the this captain class. But 
these servant leaders, they don't take the spotlight, they serve and they make everybody better around them. And uh, so the greatest leaders are the greatest servants. I mean, Jesus says that um, and he embodies that most importantly. And um, and so we can tend to we can tend to sort of see it through stained glass and, and make and think that it sounds churchy. The greatest leaders are, are the greatest servants. But whatever Jesus said is true. It's just true truth. He is the truth and he doesn't speak anything but the truth. Um, what he speaks is the fabric of the universe. It's the way things always work. It's like E equals MC squared, right? So, you know, Jim Collins' research into the companies, the best companies, is just one small example of that. And that's really at the heart of what we see in the Proverbs on power and justice. Um, what we see is that those that have power and that have the ability to do justice, uh, which is really those that, that have power, um, or the greatest amount of justice, I should say, uh, those that have power in the Proverbs ought to use their power for good. And that almost always looks like using it to, it always looks like using it to empower others. Um, disseminating, not keeping the power, not keeping the riches, not keeping the privileges to oneself, but rather seeing those things as not yours, but things that you're stewarding that are given to you by the almighty that you will give an account for one day. And they're given to you not to hoard, but to, to hand out liberally to others so that others might be, might live better, uh, might, might be enriched. Right. Um, and, and, uh, I remember Gary Hagen, who's the, he's the founder and president of the international justice mission, IJM, which does good all around the world, uh, 20 years ago, exactly. Uh, he, about this time of year, maybe a little earlier, maybe in the fall, he sat in front of us. Um, I was at a fellowship that was my first thing out of college in DC. And he sat at a table on a Friday morning in front of us in a white start shirt with his classic, uh, now graying, but then, um, pure blonde crew cut. And I mean, sharp guy, university of Chicago, uh, Harvard. And he said, um, well, he said a lot of things, but one of the things he did is he opened up a, uh, I think from Luke six, right? The, the, the account of Jesus, uh, multiplying the bread and the fish. And he just said, look, I mean, how does, how does the story go? Right. Uh, Jesus has this small lunch that this boy gives him and he starts multiplying it. And what do the disciples do? Well, Gary played this out, but you know, as Jesus starts to multiply it, they just receive it and say, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Jesus. More bread, more fish. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We, we were hungry. This is great. And as Jesus continues to multiply it, um, as Gary tells the story, you know, the, the fish and the multiply, the fish and the bread just start to start to um, pile up in mounds. And it's too much for the disciples, but they're so over overjoyed with the bounty that they just they they feed on it. They get fat. And it just sits around and sort of wastes away. No, that's not how the story goes. Why did Jesus multiply that bread and fish? He multiplied it so that the disciples could hand it out. Now, it's, it's, an, it's a silly way of saying it because it's, the point is, is a 
the point is made when you put it that way. It's, it's stupid. It's silly. It would be so ridiculous of the disciples to have done that, to have kept all that wealth to themselves. Um, we're given wealth. We're given power. We're given resources not to hoard them, but to hand them out to enrich others. And that's really a, a lot of what you see in the Proverbs. Um, power, when we hear about power, we immediately, and most, a lot of us tend to just have a negative, the, the minute we hear power, we think, we think it, it just gives, leaves a negative sort of taste in our mouths, impression on us. Um, and that's because, it's not because power is a bad thing. God is the most powerful being in the universe, and he's good. It's because we're, we are corrupt. We are bad. We're born dead on arrival, uh, totally self-centered, opposed to God. And so unchanged, when we receive power, we, we, we use it to enrich ourselves and those around us that we think can serve our purposes. And so power tends to corrupt us because we're corrupt. And it tends to bring, it tends to elicit or evoke our badness, and it tends to exacerbate or worsen our badness. Um, but power in itself isn't bad. It's a mechanism, and God used it um, the best, and we are to follow in his footsteps. So power really is a problem for us. Um, it's, not, it's not bad, but, but we are, and it shows that we are when we get it. But power, like I have been saying, is really, it really exists to, uh, to, to enrich, to enrich others. Um, let me see here. So let me just, well, let me go ahead and read um, a proverb, make a few points, okay? Power, uh, Proverbs 8, 15, and 16 says by, says, by me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. Now here we're getting into power wisdom and justice. They're all mixed together in this, in this proverb by me, me is, is wisdom here speaking. Kings reign by wisdom. One of the things that says, and we're not going to get too much into this is that there's a lot of, there are a lot of things that are implied in the, those few short words. And one of them is that um, r- rule and power are really only legitimized when, um, when, when rule is, is wise and when and when rule is just and when rule and part of justice is um is caring for the poor understanding that they have rights not not created by you but given by god by virtue of their being made in god's image and so part of just rule and wisdom is caring for those that can't care for themselves speaking out for them making sure that they're provided for and able, I would say in the American model, um, able to provide for themselves that the barriers um, that are set up against them, whether that they're born into or that that uh, are arrayed against them in society are minimized, removed, um, so that they can provide for themselves, so that they can work, etc., and be provided for. Um, special care given, of course, in the scriptures to to those that are um, not as able to provide for themselves, to the truly poor, 
like the widow and the orphan. And so um, one of the things that's implied here by me, King's reign, is that if you're not reigning as a ruler or a noble or uh, a prince or any sort of ruler by wisdom, and you're not meeting out justice, but rather injustice, and you're enriching yourself with the power you have rather than enriching others, then your rule is delegitimized in the eyes of scripture. And again, I said, I'm not going to get too much into this, but um, that is one of the core arguments that um, our, that men who influenced our founders utilized to justify breaking away from, um, from, from England and um, from Great Britain and declaring our independence. And that came out of Lex Rex, uh, the law is king, not the not the prince, but the but the the law is what tells the prince, and the law really comes to us from God. Uh, the law tells the prince how to rule, and if the and if the prince doesn't um, shape his rule around that law given by God, then he's delegitimized. So that's uh, so Samuel Rutherford, uh, Scottish. He was actually one of the divines of the Westminster Assembly that created the Westminster Confession of Faith. He actually was a along with um, John Witherspoon, who was the main teacher of one of the huge influences on James Madison, who became, who's called the father of the of our constitution. Um, these men had a huge, and they were both Scottish, they were both University of Edinburgh whoop, uh, graduates. And they had a big influence on our founders, and our much of our country is founded on, on those principles. Um, you know, that's one of the things behind our vote, the vote that we have. We have the, we have the ability through our vote to, to remove rulers that we don't believe or governors. We, would, we wouldn't call them rulers. We call them servants, public servants. And that comes from, from this biblical idea, too, um, or governors, um, those that help to keep the public order and, and provide for us so that we can provide for ourselves, not just to dole stuff out. Um, um, but to keep the keep evil at bay and to govern justly and well so that the peace is preserved and maintained and built up so that citizens can um, can provide for themselves and provide for the poor and the infirm um, and the powerless. And so that is that is that is a huge part of what our what our country was founded on which is why it was such a wonderful experiment in so many ways not perfect uh, but deeply deeply rooted in not just enlightenment principles but in biblical principles so many of the people who founded our country and who came before them who wrote charters um colonial charters up and such and so forth um that that influenced our constitution um and our government were men of great faith, Puritans that had come over to, to worship God according to their conscience and the scriptures. And so um, that's getting a bit of feel, but that, that is a bit on power and a bit on what the Proverbs have to say about power. They, they do say and imply, explicitly say and imply quite a lot about how rule is only legitimized when um, it's done through wisdom and wisdom comes from God. Uh, and so does justice. And justice isn't something we cook up. Uh, it's something... That and that's at, at the heart of the you know some debate the, the judicial debates about interpretation of the Constitution now is, um, you know, justice, law, are these things um, 
do these things tapping into something that's fixed and that comes to us from from um, an absolute and unseen ruler from God, or are they just things that we make up that fit our culture at the time? Those are two hugely, um, uh, those are two views that are very much at odds. Those are two hugely just, um, diverse, uh, I shouldn't use the word diverse, but those are two very different views. And, um, and so, yeah, the Proverbs speak a lot about justice and wisdom coming from God and rule needing to align itself with with what comes from God. So that's one of the reasons you have things in the Declaration of Independence like that famous opening by, by Jefferson that Jefferson crafted that talks about um, we are all men are all men, right? That's, I mean, how huge is that statement? All men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Rights. Right. Right. So there's that word rights. Um, and we have in Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, as the book closes down, we have that word rights. I mean, obviously, it's 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 a word in the Hebrew, but it translates out into the same uh, Proverbs 31, 8 through 9. Open your mouth for the mute. This is this is written to certainly to all of us, but to those in power, to a king. Open your mouth from a mother to to her. Uh, her son, who's ruling, King Lemuel, open your mouth for the mute. In other words, one of your main jobs as a ruler is to defend those who cannot defend themselves, to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves, which is one of the reasons that Christians are so for, one of the many, so against abortion and so for uh, protecting the rights of the unborn, because the unborn are humans made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully, Psalm 139, with unalienable rights and they cannot speak for themselves so we must speak for them and not to speak is to do a great evil right so open your mouth for the mute for the rights of all who are destitute open your mouth judge righteously defend the rights of the poor and needy and of course that goes way beyond to sort of breach the the conservative liberal um divide here in our country i mean that goes way beyond speaking up for the rights of the unborn i mean so the poor, just by and large, by almost by definition, you can see that here in this verse I just read. I'll read it again. Uh, don't have a voice. I mean, the powerful are ones that have a voice. Um, they have influence. They have social influence. I mean, what's the book? Um, I forget the authors now, but um, hurt. Uh, it's not. It's it's the whole. Um, give them a hand up, not a hand out. And just, uh, and, and the whole thesis is through research shows that, um, really a lot of times when we, what is the name of that book? When we try to help people by just giving them gobs of money, whether it's the country giving poor countries billions of dollars or people, um, just handing out money to folks that haven't, that haven't earned it. Um, it really damages, um, help, when helping hurts is what the name of the book is when helping hurts and um just talking among other things about the how poverty when you actually speak to and do research on those that are truly poor here in this country but around the world the true like one of the most devastating things about poverty we're a materialistic country more than any nation not just on on earth but in history like period um not and not just we like stuff, but we 
we like stuff in part because of what we believe and don't believe. We are children of the enlightenment and we, we are materialistic in our worldview. Typically we typically, even Christians are very much tinged by this, but we typically think of what is real only as what we can, um, apprehend by our five senses, touch, taste, smell, see here. So, uh, which is not true, but we give value to those things that we can, that we can sense. And so we are materialist and we, um, we tend to think of poverty. We show our materialistic tendencies when we think of poverty only in terms typically, or first in terms of immediately when I say poor, your mind goes to, they don't have money. But what these, what these authors show in when helping hurts is that actually the greatest form of poverty said by those expressed by those that are actually dirt poor is that they don't have a voice that they're socially poor. They don't have relationships. They don't have connections. They're despised. They don't have a voice. They're not tended to. And so there's a, there's a relational poverty that is more emotionally and otherwise damaging than anything else. And that helps actually trap people in material poverty. So open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the, the rights of the poor and needy. It's giving them a voice. It's bringing them into a relationship. It's uh, understanding that, that that's one of the huge um, that's one of the huge jobs of those that are, have been given power. Again, back to that silly, but I think potent example that Gary Hagen gives of, of Jesus multiplying the bread and the fish. It's not those that have been given power. It's not for them. That's the whole point of all this discussion in the book of Proverbs. Not discussion. It's it's aphorisms. It's truths. It's commands. It's rules to live by. It's the fabric of the universe. We are given power and money. Not for ourselves. Yes, to provide for ourselves and our families, but then when we have more of it than someone else to use it to benefit them. You know, and that's maybe the thing I'll close with is that you read in Proverbs 11, 10, verse, chapter 11, verses 10 and 11 that, you know, there are two verses that kind of say similar things back to back. And that is that look, when, when the, uh, when the wicked get power, everyone else suffers. They step on the backs of everyone else to get to where they need to be. Um, and so they go up because everyone else is going down. They're taking, they're getting rich by taking the riches of others, right? Uh, whether that's materially or otherwise. The, with, and the opposite is, is true with the just and with the righteous. And the words just and righteous can be the same exact word in the Hebrew, tzedek, um, but, and translated differently. But the, they, they understand that they don't get rich by taking, they're get, they, they get rich or get power, and which is a form of riches by God, and then they, they have that not to hoard, but to give out. And so when the Proverbs say, when the righteous rise in the city, the city rejoices, because the city gets better, because the city knows, you know, it's, the city knows when the, when the righteous, when the just have power, have money, have stuff, again, whether material or otherwise, our lives are going to get better. Not only are they not rich um, because and powerful because they're taking that stuff from us, they've been given to it. They've been given it by God, and they know that they are to disseminate it. And so all boats rise. Tim Keller, that's one of the phrases he uses. When the water, when the boat rises and the water line rises in the life of the those that have been given power and and money, who are just and righteous, all boats rise. The water line rises and all the boats around them rise because they, they use that to, to enrich the lives of others. And the degree to which we don't do that is the degree to which we are out of line with God's word and, and wicked. 
and we need to repent and, and ask God to align us with his word. And, and when I say with his word, with, with himself, right? Because his word is an outflow of his character. It is who he is. And he, he steps into history in the incarnation through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, as the word. And he shows, he embodies this truth, right? He, you know, what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 8, 9? He who, um, he who had all wealth, he was the richest person in the universe. And he says this in Philippians 2, he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. He was and remains and remained God, but he let go. He relinquished that wealth and that acknowledgement and the enjoyment of that. Not, hey, not just, not just materially, but relationally, right? I mean, in the heart of the father, loved perfectly by the father from before time began for always. Perfect intimacy, affection, um, knowing and being known in what we were created for. Never knew anything else. Remained loved by the Father, but came down here as a human to be rejected by us, to take our woes upon himself, to eventually on the cross be rejected by his own Father in our place. To have our sin sink into his very bones and soul, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, on that cross and in life, I mean, he chose, we don't, we don't choose to be born, he did. He chose to be born poor. He lived a life of obscurity as a carpenter and stonemason for, and I say stonemason because most carpenters back then were worked with stone as well. So Jesus, man, he had man hands. He was, he was a dude. Uh, he lived in a tiny, tiny village in a tiny country in the corner, on the right corner of the Mediterranean, um, at the axis of the world for yeah, the uh, the crossroads of the world for 30 years. Content to be in obscurity, content to be under the hand of the Father, and then walked into rejection and ultimate rejection, even by the Father at the cross. I mean, he who was rich became poor. Why does Paul say that? Why? So that, why did he become poor? Because he was self-flagellating? Just because he's a masochist and loves pain? No. Because sin makes us poor. Sin strips us of riches, relationally and otherwise. And eventually, it sends us away from God's presence. It separates us from God. And eventually, if we say that's what we want enough, we, uh, we end up apart from him in hell forever of our own doing. But Jesus stepped in our place and became poor he who is rich became poor that we uh, might become rich with his riches. And like, like Martin Luther, the great reformer, says that he refers to this as the great exchange. Um, the great exchange. And um, I almost want to read the verse because I kind of butchered it. But that's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. We, through his poverty, have become rich. This is the gospel. And as Christians, not only seeking to follow our Savior, certainly that. He says, follow me. You can't be a Christian and not heed that call. You can't be a Christian just because you, you trust in Jesus, you've been born again, and you're going to heaven. That's not, and then that's it. No, you can't be a Christian who doesn't follow Jesus. That's the one call, follow me. It's to be with him. It's to live like him. It's to suffer as he did with him, and yet to be brought instantly through faith in Jesus into the arms of the Father, to be made rich 
relationally and one day in every way as we see him face to face and everything's remade and our tears are wiped away and our sin is gone. No more locks on doors, no more death, right? No more pain. That's coming. But he comes and lives inside of us now, the minute we trust in him and makes us rich beyond all compare so that whatever we lose in this life, we win. We win. Um, and and so he, uh, we, we are not just to follow his example, but we have, we have that Christ whose heart is to make others rich with his riches, to disseminate his power and his wealth. It's what he came to do. It's what he did preeminently at the cross by taking our death upon himself and giving us his life. Uh, and he's alive and he's reigning and he's connecting us to himself by his spirit and he's in us by his spirit and he's drawing us up into the heavenly, seating us with him, Ephesians 2, by his spirit. And he is soon to return um, to finish what he started. He's begun the process of making all things new. His kingdom is spreading, but he is going to return and he's going to consummate that. He's going to finish it. He's going to complete it. He's going to bring us to himself physically as the God man, as our king, as the good king who gave of himself, gave us of all of his riches, became poor to make us rich. And that's what our lives should be like as little Little Christ is what Christians mean, right? Little Christs, Christ in us, following our master, living like him. Wherever we go, people's lives ought to get better. The rich, the best riches we can give them is the riches of the gospel. And that is the word of the gospel. He came to do what we could not do for ourselves. The gospel is not do X, Y, Z and be accepted by God. The gospel isn't what we can do. It's what we can't do. It's what he has already done in the person of Jesus Christ whom the Father sent forth in the fullness of time to save us, Galatians chapter 4. And so wherever we go, we uh, the gospel ought to be in the very presence of the living God in Christ by his spirit, ought to be making, ought to be raising boats up, ought to be making cities rejoice. I mean, we ought to be people of joy, and wherever we go, we ought to be giving of our wealth and our power in all sorts of ways, emotionally, physically, in, other, in every other way, intellectually, to... And there ought to be life, there ought to be flourishing. Cities, cultures, neighborhoods, workplaces ought to be better because of us. Because we're not gathering for ourselves, we're scattering as God fills us and gives us and enriches us with his very with His very self, right? God, thank you for becoming poor to make us rich. Help us understand this as the good news we have to share. And show us how to pass along this good news in word and deed enriching others with all that we have in Christ.